0: Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon.
1: I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print.
0: Declan Green is a writer and theatre maker based in Melbourne. His plays include A Black Joy, Home Economics and Pompeii LA. They have had numerous independent and main stage productions, and Declan has won several awards. Today, we're here to talk about Moth, which won the Augie Award in 2011 for Theatre for Young Audiences and was shortlisted for the 2009 Victorian Premier's Literary Award.
1: Sebastian is a terminally unpopular 15-year-old with an overactive imagination and an obsession with anime and death. His only friend, Clarissa, is an emo Wiccan art freak, barely one rung higher than Sebastian on the social ladder. What starts as just another night drinking down at the cricket nets soon gives way to an ecstatic vision that leaves Sebastian unconscious and their friendship left in ruin.
0: Declan, thank you for joining us to talk about your play, Moth. It's dark and funny and agonising, blatantly confronting, hyper real, knowing but never smug, and tender at times without ever tasting sweet. This kaleidoscopic mashup of the good and the bad and the ugly is almost blinding, and certainly too close for comfort sometimes because it's grounded in truth. The merciless victimisation which Sebastian and Clarissa enjoy is something that many of us experienced at high school and most of us want to forget about it, but you chose to go back and present the experience from an unexpected angle and with unflinching honesty. Talk us through the development process. The project was initiated by Chris Conn from Arena Theatre, who was the
2: uh, original director of Moth. And um, he uh, just approached me with a single image, which was the idea of cricket nets at a high school at night and from there it was just kind of a series of conversations between Chris and I and um, covering a really wide range of topics and kind of interests and kind of things that we were fascinated with at the time and the idea of um, a religious ecstasy ended up filtering into the conversation and kind of converging with this image and uh, a plot was like very kind of gradually sketched out which ended up being about these two teenage kind of loners. Clarissa and Sebastian, who are kind of um, on the bottom of the high school hierarchical kind of pecking order or whatever. But um, I wrote like a really rough and ready first draft of the script and um, we got in a couple of actors. Um, the first of our one was Erin uh, G. Norville and Dylan Young, who ended up playing um, the first Sebastian. And then once we had that material, we took it into a high school... Um, in Essendon and just got the students to do readings. It was Buckley Park Secondary College. And f- really for us, it was just kind of testing the robustness of the language and the ideas that we were kind of dealing with, whether these characters seemed, I guess, relatable to the students, but I like don't like to use the word authenticity, but whether they felt that there was a familiarity about those characters and the way they'd been drawn, whether they were people they felt like they could have known or, or whether there was uh, kind of an integrity to the language we were using. Then from there, we just went back to the rehearsal room and it kind of grew out of this kind of really deep, knit kind of collaboration between the actors and the designers and these students and, and us. I guess um, f- for us, like very early on, it was important that we didn't um, create, I guess, a kind of sepia stained or kind of, you know, affectionate or um, kind of tween notion of what it is to be a loser at high school. We kind of wanted to try and represent it as the kind of ugly and genuinely crushing experience it, it is to to be subject to that kind of scrutiny and that kind of, um, negative attention constantly day
0: in and day out when writing about the experience of these particular teenagers who you've described as uber losers and who you've just said are on the bottom of the pecking order were there particular things that you wanted to avoid you said you didn't want it to be twee or Mm -hmm. too affectionate or sepia toned but were there also particular things that you were aiming for
2: i think in the rehearsal room a lot of the conversations we had were kind of ended up being about one particular kid that all of us felt that we knew from high school like The work experience students who were kind of part of it as well or the people who were the general managers of the theatre company arena when they were in the room, everybody had one kid that they knew. And it was just kind of interesting sharing those stories and finding these kind of common qualities between these kids. It was generally that they were from a lower socioeconomic background, although they were kids who had like a great gulf between or an understanding between the way that they were presenting themselves and whatever kind of imaginative world kept them buoyant from day to day. So kids who would kind of escape into fantasy through comics or or Star Trek or drawing or whatever. But I kind of thought that it was sort of, important for the audience to feel kind of annoyance for this person, for almost the audience to kind of participate in the bullying of these people to a degree, that you could go like, you know, one of the reasons that these kids end up being victimised is because they're abrasive personalities, and a lot of the time they are kind of obnoxious, and that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be loved and they shouldn't be looked after and cared for and nurtured through this unbelievably difficult time in any person's life. But, yeah, that I thought it would be kind of interesting for, for the audience to kind of feel the sense of yeah irritation or kind of for them to kind of, I guess, participate in the subjugation of these characters.
1: I guess that abrasiveness is something that I want to just pick up on in terms of them as individuals. The protagonists in Moth are two bold, urgent, contemporary Australian 15-year-olds. As you say in your author notes, an integral part of their friendship is their love of mocking each other and the people around them. And in his introduction... Chris Conn writes that from the beginning of the development process, you were adamant that you would resist making the central characters of Sebastian and Clarissa likeable. Can you expand on why these two outcasts are the prime targets of both adolescent bullies and their teachers' loathing?
2: In the case of you know, Clarissa, she's an angry, overweight 15-year-old girl. And in Sebastian's case it's that he's smelly and annoying and and obnoxious and like I was saying before, like does have this kind of absence of kind of self awareness that you know he doesn't particularly understand why people think he's a loser and maybe he doesn't even really think of himself as a loser. Mm. And I was kinda thought it was important in kind of drawing their relationship that they that they do have this kind of weird little hierarchy that exists between them where Sebastian is still almost kind of enacts the bullying that he receives onto Clarissa, like the fact that he still kind of puts himself in a bit of a pecking order above her.
1: This friendship by insult is a compelling, highly recognisable portrayal of two modern Australian adolescents. They're self-centred, they're mocking, they're vulnerable, and they're very funny. They're emotionally fused together by their traumatic, alienated social lives. The status games involve physical and verbal abuse. Sebastian plays on her fears of suffocating to death, for example. They both reinvent the past to humiliate each other or annoy each other. But these also quickly turn into a mutual need for reconciliation and forgiveness. Can you tell us more about the dynamic of their friendship?
2: I guess I just sort of like that dynamic that they can be completely codependent, but at the same time, they really can't stand each other. You know, it is a friendship that is kind of fused together out of necessity just because you don't want to be the kid who sits by themselves ever. And it's, you know, it's funny how much students at that age really do kind of like stick together. Like being a unit is a really, really important thing. And loyalty in, in friendship is absolutely paramount. Like, I remember when I was at school, it was like, I was terrified of going alone anywhere. My friends and I would be like, I'm going to go to the canteen. Someone has to come with me. <laughs> like You couldn't go anywhere by yourself. I'm going to the bathroom. Someone needs to come with me. Yeah. Like, because then I'll be a loner If I if I go by myself. I'm a yeah. loner and people will think I don't have friends.
1: For that five minutes. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) And then even like the trauma of having classes where you don't have friends. Mm. Like sometimes, you know, in school you'd end up with whatever maths class and that's just a class where you actually don't know anyone. So you get to either kind of sit by yourself or go and sit with someone you don't really know or like very much.
1: In scene four... With a little help from a bottle of Malibu,
2: yeah.
1: um, on a school over one night, Clarissa says we get closer. Which, yeah, yeah, Sebastian then explains away with because I'm cold. Yeah, yeah, which I love, and then she kisses him.
2: Yeah, yeah, and
1: it's long and messy and awful. But where does that come from? Do you I, think? I mean, I
2: just kind of think that friendships at that age are so messy. Like yeah. they're so intense. You never have more intense friendships in your life than you do at high school, and. It's also at the time when you're still like figuring yourself out, like in terms of you know your sexuality and kind of you're willing to be kind of vulnerable to each other in this, and you're kind of obsessed with self-evisceration and confession and stuff like that. It's, it's just, I think like friendships at that age are just like a really messy and nebulous and difficult to pin down kind of thing. Mm. And
1: new best friend each week, kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. I guess for me that was kind of like a texture that kind of would make sense in their friendship. That it could be that Clarissa's kind of in love with him the whole time or it could just be that she's drunk or it could be, mm. you know, it could be kind of, yeah, it could be anything but I kind of, it's okay for it to be ambiguous because I feel like those characters wouldn't even really have the agency to explain it or kind of understand it themselves.
1: Yeah, know. right. The other moment that I wanted to talk about in terms of their friendship was right near the end of the, of the play actually and we see that their friendship is quite an intimate one. Clarissa rewrites history, in fact, in the name of reconciliation and she arms Sebastian with a bravery so that he can rescue her from her drug-induced depression cave. She says to him, You don't seem scared at all. You wrap your arms around me, you buckle me into the harness, you tug the rope to make sure it's secure and we rise up through the dark like angels together up towards the light. And she seduces his scattered mind in this moment for me to travel back to the truth of the final events that occurred that day, Mm -hmm. like moths to a flame.
2: It's a really bleak play, obviously, but Mm. I guess if there's an aspect of hope to it, it's that this kind of like hope for forgiveness or the hope for Clarissa to be able to forgive herself. But I was just kind of thinking about, I guess, the concept of forgiveness and the idea that, you know, if you do repent and you do feel genuinely feel bad for something, awful that you've done you can have absolution for that and I think that there's something really kind of yeah really kind of wonderful and beautiful about that idea Mm. so I guess that's kind of how that ended up kind of getting woven into the play and that the entire play is just about a kind of cry for absolution Mm. for Clarissa the whole play takes place in her kind of subconscious I guess or the driving force behind the play is that need for absolution or that need to be forgiven for something that she feels that she's done wrong Mm. and like whether she actually has done anything wrong is something that's completely like that might not be the, the case whatsoever, and it probably isn't the case. But, yeah. you know, you can imagine the kind of guilt that some, some, like somebody would carry.
1: According to Cameron Woodhead's review in The Age, she is fighting for her right to be unloved, which mm-hmm. I thought was really a great sum up for her in mm-hmm. a way. She's deliberately ostracizing herself, rejecting before she can be rejected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems, you know, adolescence is not a time for celebrating difference in this
2: case yeah I, th- I think that's that's definitely the case and I think the, the idea of yeah like kind of rejecting people before they reject you is something that's really really kind of pretty pertinent with her character mm. I guess I feel like you know it's something else that kind of comes up in another part of the play but there's this really vulgar truism about like the um, teenage years are the best years of your life. And when you're a teenager, you're kind of told that over and over again, that these are the best years of your life. And, you know, it's really important for you to enjoy these because they are gone so fast. And Mm -hmm. when you're a teenager, particularly when you're a teenager who's not at the top of the social ladder, who's kind of living with victimization every single day and feels a knot of dread in their stomach when they wake up and the idea of actually having to go in and face that kind of ritualistic humiliation on a daily basis... They go slowly. They go really, really slowly. You can't imagine that they will ever be over.
1: Clarissa says that's total bullshit, that stuff that you were just talking about, that these years aren't fast, they're slow, they're so fucking slow. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. It's a good way to get your point across, just have a character say it. (laughs) Just just write it down and put a character's name
1: next to it. It's very
0: subtle, (laughs) artful writing on my behalf. But she does really capture the suffocating nature of that self-hatred and self-loathing that's a combination of your own internalized stuff and the yeah. stuff that's put upon you with that dream sequence where she's trapped in one of those old diving suits and she's on the bottom of the ocean and she can't breathe and she's suffocating and it's all black. What she's describing is just like the weight
2: of any depression and that's what you're describing there, just that sense of like absolute hopelessness and despair and that inability to function, that complete short-circuiting of, of um, any ability to kind of live.
1: In scene two, she says i 'm not an emo i 'm a Wiccan yeah she 's very pointed about it with Clinton, and I just wondered is there a reason she 's drawn to this particular subgroup as a teenager do you think
2: uh, in my head it's just um it 's just that she wouldn 't be an emo because she thinks emos are losers or they, those are the kind of boundaries that she 's kind of like drawn around the social group in her school, but um this this group is worse than this group
0: but also Wiccans dabble in the black arts, if you want to call it that. Mm. And it does seem like it allows her to connect with some sort of power, perhaps, that's beyond her, that she doesn't feel that she has access to in her day-to-day life, and she might know that there's not much in it. She might not actually believe any of it, but it might give her some kind of sense of purpose and power, Power, connection to something beyond herself.
2: Yeah, I reckon that's definitely true. I think that one of the things that we were talking about a lot was just about how when you're a kid, you're just kind of like... Oh, when you're a, you know, a young adult, you're kind of like trying on skins a lot. And who knows, like maybe like five months earlier, Carissa was like a Rastafarian or something <laughs> like that. But the fact that she is somebody who is kind of like actually engaged in the constant kind of um, refining and um, updating of her imagery or the kind of imagery she builds around herself. So in the play, when um, one of the kind of uh, moments that uh, signals her, like, complete descent or collapse is the fact that she gets rid of all her Wiccan stuff and she kind of throws out her candles and her incense because she suddenly feels dumb and humiliated by it all and these kind of these efforts to um, present herself in a a different way or make herself seem special or unique. But I guess one of the things that kind of divides her and Sebastian is that Sebastian kind of doesn't even have that level of self-awareness. He's just kind of content to delve into one specific set of interests and kind of really nothing more, like... He's he's not really interested in crafting his identity on any level. He's just sort of somebody who, you know, exists as flotsam. He just kind of floats through school.
1: Let's people identify him.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he ends up with his identity kind of like um, inscribed on him or sort of rather ascribed to him.
1: Well, let's move on to talk about Sebastian a bit more. Sebastian is the terminally unpopular anime devotee who's always slightly greasy and has a laugh that is beyond annoying. Chris Conn was reading a report in the development stages that stated a quarter of children aged 10 to 14 in Australia were worried that the world would come to an end before they grow old. I find that an extraordinary number, firstly. Yeah,
2: it's incredible, isn't
1: it? It is incredible. And I just wondered, do you think Sebastian's obsession with video games, for example, is his form of escapism from his obsession with death?
2: I guess like there's the idea of the end of the world is something that kind of looms fairly large in his consciousness because he's really interested in um, post-apocalyptic anime like neon Genesis and Ghost in the machine and stuff like that. I guess I always kind of imagined that this was something that was a world of like fantasy or, or kind of escape that he could kind of retreat into. and I guess the video games, yeah are definitely definitely part of that mm. but that I didn't I never kind of imagine that Sebastian has any kind of real sense of his mortality at all because you know, I don't think you really really know that you're going to die yet at that age. And um, I think that's one of the horrible things about the play or something maybe I just feel when I watch it is just this thing of like watching two young people kind of spiral towards this devastating and horrible climax but without any of the kind of skills to equip them with the idea of death or the idea of losing themselves or their sanity or their kind of um, hold on reality in any real way.
1: His sense of self-splinters though as a result of an ecstatic religious vision in a vision of the Christian martyr St. Sebastian... He says to him, this is your destiny, to save mankind, to usher them into the safe and unwaiting arms of the Lord. And for the first time in his life, it gets to scene eight, and Sebastian says, and I go to school, and for the first time ever, I don't feel sick when I walk in the gates. I am better than all you fuckheads. You've talked about the fact that he's not obsessed with death Mm -hmm. necessarily, but in this moment of his ecstatic vision... Mm -hmm. Is it a, a mental illness, do you think? Is it a product of his tormented environment? Is it his overactive imagination, potentially? Or is it actually, I mean, for him, it is a spiritual meeting of God and this well, godlike beast and, mm-hmm. and himself. I find it tricky to believe that he's not obsessed with death, actually. Mm-hmm.
2: In my head, like, the, the play has always been about these two young people kind of dealing with the onset of mental illness at a, at mm-hmm. a really vulnerable age. I guess this is his first kind of, like, psychotic episode. Like, becomes conflated with this kind of terrible instance where where he's, you know, lying on a football field, um, having his face spat on, and, you know, this, like, really kind of traumatic instance of bullying. Like, when he breaks in this moment, the fantasy is one of power and one of kind of redressing that balance so that he can turn up to school the next day and feel special and feel that he's been selected and that there is a greater plan for him, that his life is a bigger and more important thing than what he can see around him. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, like, part of the form of the the piece is that it's supposed
0: to be open enough that it can be read in in any number of ways, you know. Mm. I'd like to talk to you now about the structure of the piece, which is a twisted patchwork. It's stuffed with influence and reference. And Chris Conn said that as the play develops... The audience is increasingly put in a position where it's not clear what's real and what's the product of Sebastian's delusions. This is a non linear narrative. But even though the narrative is non linear, it does have a forward progression, obviously, and there are clear plot points. But how did you find a way for all the different themes within the play to exist in a chaotic harmony? I went through like a ridiculous number of drafts. It was just like I was constantly working on it for for an entire year.
2: And trying to keep that harmony was, was really, really difficult and trying to kind of keep a degree of dramaturgical clarity and, and then provide entry points for the audience and to kind of balance between um, intrigue and confusion. Or, or maybe that it's okay for to allow the audience to kind of linger in a space of confusion, but you've always got to be there, kind of just in the, the periphery of their sight, kind of there, ready to hold their hand and kind of pull them through the next part of the
0: journey. I mean, it is a play existing in someone's subconscious recounting to themselves but also to a friend of theirs that's no longer with them yeah was going through a mental collapse yeah yeah yeah, i mean there's there's a lot of stuff going (laughs) on (laughs)
2: yeah it's pretty dense
0: how did you manage that because it's punctuated by um what chris conn calls a a kind of Mm non-space where clarissa and sebastian are reflecting back on and attempting to accurately recall a sequence of events in which they were involved and that does anchor the piece and there's certainly Mm -hmm. points throughout that have to happen at certain moments but say for example sebastian's experience when he goes into the church with the old man and the little girl with yeah. the dolphin. Yeah, yeah. And he goes in there and air conditioning is just as much of a salvation as St. Sebastian. Yeah, and yeah, is. yeah, yeah, There's yeah. All of these kind of moments that could have happened in, in other places, but did you have some kind of basis for why those things happened there and why they couldn't happen anywhere else? Or For that scene in particular, that was definitely the first, we wanted to m- mark that as the first time that,
2: Uh, yeah, we do enter a space of possible unreality where um, we were kind of, I guess, encouraging the audience to really kind of question the kind of status of this scene. Because, again, um, within the form of the piece, it's described just as lucidly as them being in the schoolyard in the first half of the play, that um, it still has, I guess, exists on this kind of hierarchy of description in exactly the same kind of level or state. In a, in a sense, like, I feel like the creative team on the play, we had a very clear understanding of what was real and what, was, what wasn't real in the play. And I think it was important that we had that, that we had our own kind of compass to navigate through this world, but that at the same time, you know, it's important for me that, that the audience don't really know whether, whether that's real or not. I guess in that scene as well, that it builds to
0: a pretty monstrous climax where the guy who pulls out his glass eye and forces Sebastian to stare inside his skull... So tell us what you wanted readers and audience members to take away from the chaos of Sebastian and Clarissa's journey because there's a lot going on there. I feel that with everything I write, I'm much more interested in kind of, I guess, creating kind of a really sort of vast
2: network of interwoven ideas and concepts and images and senses and um, stories rather than kind of honing on a narrow three-act, fourth-wall narrative trajectory. The kind of world that, um, that we're trying to create around them is one that's confusing and disorienting in the same way that Sebastian's mental collapse is confusing and disorienting for him. And like him, you have to go on this journey. And like Clarissa, you have to sink down into this kind of depth with her. And if you're going to make sense of it or kind of take anything away from it, you actually have to do the work. <laughs>
1: So in order to realise the world of this chaotic play and the nature of its unique style of storytelling, the actors must bring to life multiple characters across time and place. Both Clarissa and Sebastian help to enact each other's recollection of the events. Rather than the actor assuming the array of different roles each time, you were very specific in your notes that in realising the story elements, the actor must remain entirely subjective very much mediated by the character's opinion of that person at that time. How does this particular dramatic element add to the atmosphere of the play for you?
2: We only had two actors and I definitely wanted to tell a story that was much bigger. So it was going to be um, important that there would be a range of other characters who found their way into the world of the play and that had kind of a representation um, within the form of the piece. And i kind of I thought that there was just kind of like a pretty like easy invitation there in the sense that the characters do really love mocking other people, so kind of the kind of formal note would be one of kind of imitation rather than kind of uh, representation. We kind of wanted to maintain that distance and also kind of i guess contribute to the audience's understanding of these characters that they do have this kind of contempt for the world around them and the people that inhabit it and yeah, so I guess it kind of ended up fulfilling both kind of criteria
1: in scene two Clarissa says. And he's all like, sorry, Sebastian, I was aiming for the bin. And Sebastian says, and you're like shrieking. That's not even funny, you faggot. And she says, I don't sound like that. And and Sebastian goes, ha ha, yes, you do. And she hits him. But then immediately at this point, that transforms not just the dialogue, but her hitting him becomes Mm -hmm. Clinton throwing shit at Sebastian.
2: That convention becomes a useful tool, I think. In terms of really setting up, I guess, the uh, the kind of iris that you view this world through, that it is like a a world that's very much mediated through both the characters' kind of subjectivity, that the line between kind of truth and, you know, truth and lie and fantasy and reality is kind of infinitely blurred. And in a sense, there's no right version of these events, that there's, Mm. you know, that whatever you're watching is kind of confused and jumbled and completely mediated by the characters. kind of biases and um i guess i kind of like that about it because it is a play about like you know two young people's like subjectivity and they're kind of um i guess you know yeah it's a solipsistic kind of take like we're, we're literally inside their their world and the the limits of our understanding are the limits of their understanding you know mm. in that sense and so i think yeah having having them kind of uh, feeding in uh, the other characters in the world, not in the kind of, you know, greater objective kind of theatre-making kind of sense, but just in terms of where a couple of, like, ratty young people, you know, doing dumb voices for each other, I think that kind of <laughs> it manages to kind of contribute a bunch of things to the audience's understanding of the work, I hope.
1: And it also gives it a pace, because it doesn't give them time to sit in that moment of banter. It draws them very quickly and sharply back to yeah, yeah. the point. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. And they think there's a point of kind of communion in it for them as well. The fact that, like, they do have an ag- agreed way that these people sound between yeah. the two of them. Like, the fact that they know that whatever their art teacher, Mr. Paglos, sounds like this. <laughs> and that's the voice they do. And they both kind of share that. There's kind of like a mutual enjoyment of that. Yeah. But then they do have their quibbles as well. Like, the fact that Clarissa doesn't think she sounds like how Sebastian makes her sound. <laughs> and, you know, Sebastian doesn't think his mum sounds like how Clarissa makes her sound, you know? Yeah.
1: Finally, this suburban tragedy ventures into those darker, private regions of the human psyche. It provokes thoughts we'd rather remained buried and exposes hypocrisies that challenge audience perceptions of their own moral superiority. In many of the interviews talking about Moth in the past, you've been quoted as saying, in so many words, that bullying is the gradual erasure of someone's identity. Through constant humiliation and degradation over an extended amount of time, it's something a lot of people never properly get over. You included an optional ending for this play, the image of these two obliterated moths fluttering beneath the flickering lights. Can you tell us what it was about these characters or this story that you were compelled to extend this empathetic hand to these people?
2: The play um, was always going to end like that with... um, with uh, this idea of Clarissa talking about, um, I guess, really kind of explaining the form and kind of explicitly stating that this is occurring in her memory and that, in a sense, what she's seeking is absolution and that um, hopefully she hopes that kind of time will erase her guilt and that uh, we get the idea that this is kind of this constantly resetting kind of world, that this is maybe a ritual that she goes through every week or every night or every hour, or like you don't really know. Yeah, until we get to, yeah, the idea that it's the, we return to that um, first image of the two of them kind of under this um, floodlight. And then when we were previewing the play um, at the Malt house, the audience kept applauding as soon as the lights went down. In the moment when Sebastian was shot and we just realised that in the production that we'd made, that was actually the ending and it was an accident, but that's actually how it had happened. It was just the play had built up to that moment and the way we'd structured it, that was actually the perfect moment to end it. Mm. So we ended up cutting the final scene. I think there's two options with the ending of a play like this. You can either kind of drag people right down to the bottom of the ocean and then release them there and just let them kind of have to fend for themselves to get back to the surface or you kind of gently let them back up to the surface yourself. And I think that's just kind of what that option sort of represents, whether you do want to kind of leave people kind of in a state of like horror and kind of disbelief or whether you do want to kind of more gently lure them back or kind of lead them back into their kind of their own world.
1: Do you think it's important that particularly writing for young people, that you imbue your work with a sense of hope though?
2: Um no.
1: Okay. <laughs> I, I wonder if that's what it was about, that's all. <laughs>
2: no, no, I mean I I guess I feel like as long as Glee exists, Moth can exist <laughs> as well. <laughs> like Good I, I don't know. I think there are plenty <laughs> of like positive affirmation kind of you know get up and dance kind of texts out there for mm-hmm. young people. I don't think every single te- text has to have a, a happy kick in the pants at the end of it. Like I think there's room for everything. Mm-hmm. I think Moth just happens to be on the bleaker end of that spectrum. Honest. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Hopefully, but yeah. I feel like as long as the play doesn't feel like it's kind of misery porn, and I don't think it does. Well, I hope that it doesn't anyway, but that um, it does, yeah, like you say, kind of represent an honest set of experiences or does represent kind of um, an an experience of adolescence and um, of mental illness that um, is kind of truthful, then I think that there's no reason it has to end on a positive note,
1: Mm. yeah. Thank you so much for talking to us about your play today. Cheers, thanks so much for having
0: me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au.
1: If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter.
0: This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous
1: assistance of Rachel Corbett.